Welcome to the Living Shelter Podcast, where we explore ways to create healthy, energy-efficient, and joyful places to live. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, a Pacific Northwest native and an architect with over 30 years' experience designing with a focus on sustainable options. Our goal is to help you expand your toolkit so you can help build a resilient future that includes comfortable and sustainable places to live. Our guests share their years of experience in one or more of the many facets of the green and natural building industries with topics from material choices for health and wellness to energy efficiency and regenerative site design and some big picture ideas from thought leaders we think you'll find inspiring. In this episode of Living Shelter, we're going to take a virtual dumpster dive into deconstruction as an alternative to building demolition, the traditional approach of demolishing existing structures at the end of their life and carting the waste to the dump really doesn't make sense any longer. Why? Well, about 30% of material going to the landfill is construction waste, leading to higher levels of methane being produced as these materials break down and release their stored carbon. The good news is deconstruction can divert a good portion of this valuable material to be reused. Dave Benink of Reuse Consulting and Innovation Center in Bellingham is helping communities and organizations near and far transition to this model. Hi, Dave, and thanks for joining us today. You bet. I'm happy to be here. So how long have you been doing this? When, when did you start the Reuse Consulting? It's funny you'd ask that because this month is our is my thirtieth anniversary month. So, oh my gosh, it is congratulations! It's almost to the day. Actually, it is the day. It's like it's it's March fifteenth. <laughs> yes, that's amazing. So yeah, it's thirty years. Wow. Well, I was going to ask how many buildings you've deconstructed over that time period, but I I'm guessing. That's maybe too many to count. Well, we stopped counting at 5,000 projects because, uh, you know, it, it just didn't mean anything anymore. <laughs> so, But it wasn't, yeah. you know, we don't just uh, take entire buildings down to the ground. Sometimes it's kitchen remodels. Sometimes it's just removing someone's deck. It's whatever whatever the the project requires, right? Yeah. So all different scales. And, I mean, I've... I've seen on your website that there are large buildings like old schools that you've been working on, some uh, buildings in different parts of the country that have been taken apart by your company. Yeah, that's correct. We, we you know, we're bidding on a 40,000 square foot factory building right now. That's a big one. That's a, you know, yeah. some of these projects weigh, you know, well over a million pounds, just one project. So, wow! It's no wonder that we've saved over a hundred million pounds from the landfill over our time. Yes. So, before you started this, what was your background? Were you in the construction industry? Actually, no. I uh, <laughs> I was at it, when I was at you know university. I I needed an internship, and I was going uh, for a water quality degree, and you know, to be in that field of work. And the nonprofit that I started working for said, let's uh, 
you know, we could use a hand for a little while. We're starting a store. It's going to sell used building materials. So essentially, I'm still doing my 30-year internship. Uh, <laughs> so someday I'll move uh, on, I guess. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those amazing twists in life, you know, where you you think you're heading in one direction and they, you, you know, you get it, an opportunity. I didn't even look at it as an opportunity. It was just like, hey, I'll help out. And then here we are. Yeah, 30 years later. Was was there a point where you knew that you were going to stay on this track? I think that it was, um, it just came from a passion to help the community and the environment and to help, help, you know, in many different ways. And then I just started to realize over time that our, our you know, the, the circular economy isn't just helping the environment, it's helping people. And if you can, um, you know, it's also doing historic preservation, it's creating jobs, there's lots of good things that are happening. And all at the same time, frankly, right? So that that's when it uh, became addictive. And, uh, mm. you know, it became something that a lot of us in the industry just become addicted to it, because we're all looking for positives. And, you know, the sustainability industry, widely, you know, we're looking for something that is right. making a huge difference. And, and when you when you come across that and there are really no downsides, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's like you find your calling and you know that this is is what you're meant to do. You mentioned the circular economy. Can you tell us a little more about that? What what exactly does that mean? Well, you know, it's funny because 30 years ago, no one used that term, or at least I hadn't heard it. And so I don't know when it came about, but I thought it was a good uh, way of describing what we do. It's basically taking a product or, you know, a material and entering it into a system and then with the idea that it won't leave that system it will circulate the linear economy is you know is the dominant economy now and that's where materials enter the system and then they exit the system into the landfill and all of the embodied energy and uh, carbon and all that all of the negative impacts of that economy are realized so we um we take a, a product like a beam, like a wood beam from a building, and we um, we we save that, and it gets reused in other way. And um, we actually uh, have one example of something where we could tell that the beam had been it was on its fourth use, so it had been in three buildings, and we sold it to someone to incorporate into the fourth building. That's amazing. That's that's a great example of keeping something circulating. I I remember first hearing Bill Cradle to Cradle when he was first talking about cradle to cradle and, you know, rather than cradle to grave, which is that linear idea of you put something in in the system and it serves its life and then it gets buried. And cradle to cradle is reusing it. Not always for the same purpose, but material that can be kept in the system and doesn't degrade as as it is reused and over and over. So I'm imagining that like this big beam that has been used three times and is going to its fourth home might not be holding up the same kind of structure. It might be used is it going to be used decoratively or can it be used structurally? 
Yeah. Well, I th- I, I think it's it's Bill McDonald. We uh, we do value our products, you know, being used as they were originally designed, you know, and sometimes they are sort of downcycled to where a door becomes a desktop or something like that, you know, and that's that's okay with us because it is it's being reused and and really that's battle is like trying to find a new home for things it's you know it's it's not too hard for us to save the things it's sometimes it feels harder to to find a new home for them you know and uh so but it is it is good for for example for a door to be used as a door because it's replacing the um the footprint of manufacturing a new door and a new door probably has a higher uh, carbon footprint than a new desktop for, or a new shelf. So we, mm. we do try to keep them, uh, keep things in use in their original, for their original purpose. I know that building construction materials are the largest contributor of solid waste to our landfills. And the reuse and deconstruction industry is turning that on its head and keeping things out of the landfills. I mean, do you talk with your customers and clients about carbon and, you know, the carbon storage that they get with old wood versus new wood? I'm learning more and more about carbon sequestration versus carbon storage. Right. It seems like a really important thing. Well, well, two things. One is that you know some of the products that, you know that that uh, I mean when you look at a northwest or you look at a north american building it's it's primarily made of wood i don't mean all buildings i mean a lot of the buildings are primarily made of wood and so a lot of conversations about carbon revolve around wood but the fact is that a lot of the other items that we save like metal or concrete and things like that they it isn't about the material. Sometimes, sometimes it's not about the material as much as it is the energy and the process of creating that material, which also creates uh, a carbon footprint or carbon dioxide, you know, that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. so we don't, you know, we we go way beyond wood for starters. And um, but here's the deal: um, I work all over North America, and I've helped out 13 different countries now, but. When I travel to different parts of the country, I, I don't assume that uh, everyone is on board with climate change. I don't assume that they understand I- anything about carbon, frankly. Um, and so, but it doesn't matter. We're trying to reach everyone. And that's the only way you can truly be sustainable is to involve everyone. So, so you know, we might go to, you know, in Washington State, the Seattle area, we might talk about carbon footprint. Um, because we think people have a general understanding of that here. But then we travel to the Midwest, and we actually, we we don't call it deconstruction anymore. We call it building harvesting, because they relate to harvesting. They are harvesting for a, a living. It's surrounding them so that they can understand that this is another way to harvest materials, and that's something that they relate to. And um, there are other areas, you know, where we travel to like inner city neighborhoods and in, in Rust Belt cities. And then we're, we're, we're really focusing on affordable building materials and, and job creation, things like that. So, so we understand the bigger picture and we, um, we can draw on that, 
on each of those benefits as it as it is best suited for that community. That is so important to meet people really where they are and where they can think about it relating to their lives. Because, yes, we live in a bit of a bubble in the Pacific Northwest, and I, I love that you can, you know, change the language and change the reference points so people are more open to to making a difference, even if they don't realize how much of a difference they're making in other ways. You're listening to Living Shelter. I'm your host, Terry Phelan, and I'm talking with Dave Benink of Reeves Consulting about building deconstruction and the circular economy. So the circular economy is keeping products in use rather than creating a waste stream. And I understand that the Reuse Center and innovation centers that you've helped set up in other parts of the country and other parts of the world have that sweet spot of doing the deconstruction plus the sorting and the storage and the selling. How important is it for all of those things to be kind of handled under one roof? So here's the thing. I, you know, like I said, 30th year of doing this, and um, we've helped uh, almost 175 reuse businesses uh, across North America. And one of the things, you know, you start to generate, um, you have like 175 business plans in your head, right? And you have, you hmm. have all of these similarities and all of these um, unique uh, aspects of each community and each uh, reuse operation, what their, what their problems are, what is good, what's not good, and um, what they're struggling with. And so we created the Reuse Innovation Center concept, I think like 2005 is when I first came up with the idea. And it's basically saying that this is a really hard business to be in. And, um, and then I realized, you know what, um, you go to Costco or something like that. And, and you think of Costco as this giant business, right? Um, but really, it's 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 multiple businesses all working together to get uh, you know to manufacture products, to ship them to Costco, to advertise them and sell them and and get customers, uh, you know, in the store. And so Costco isn't just a single business; it's a it's it's a group of businesses working together. And so. That's one of the things about the reuse industry. We, it was like all of us were working on our own, trying to solve all the problems all at once without any help and uh, without any uh, coordination. And so what we did is we said, well, we're going to have not have one business under one roof. We're going to have 10 businesses under one roof. And some of those businesses focus on deconstruction. So they're like a contractor. Um, and some of those businesses take the wood from deconstruction and make something out of them, like reclaimed wood furniture, or they mill beams into beautiful reclaimed flooring and that sort of thing. So, and some of them repair things and then some of them sell things. So like our reuse innovation center in Bellingham has nine different businesses. Not all of them are co-located together. But really, it you know it's it's uh, you know 
we are in a way working together in uh, under one roof, so to speak. And it's really helpful because you're sharing costs. You're, um, you're, uh, you know, so one of one business is talking about it, and now it's nine businesses talking about it. So it, it's generating interest in what we're doing because um, you have those conversations going on, and you have a greater reach. So what we're trying to do now is reinvent the the reuse industry, and it's it's part of you know an effort to grow the circular economy and say. What if we all work together and and tried to do things in volume like Costco does, right? They have economies of scale mm-hmm. so big. And and we are generally all these little small businesses, um, sometimes, uh, you know, from disadvantaged people groups and things like that. But we, if we work together, we can be stronger and more efficient. And guess what? We just took on a high school and we saved... 125,000 pounds of material in 30 days. So 125,000 pounds in 30 days. My gosh. In 30 days. Because we work together, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the the synergy of that is is really inspiring to, I, I didn't realize that this was a like a cooperative or a collection of businesses, and it could be set up under different business models for working together. I know you also consult on international programs or the reuse programs in international locations. Is working in other parts of the world different? The the services that you provide, are they different in other parts of the world and have working in those areas change the way that you approach things here in any way? Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, in North America, we're more likely to travel to a site. We're more likely to, you know, to to physically help train people to grow the circular economy. Like we are not just talking about it, we're doing it, you know. And so we 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 actually do projects here and then we are actively trying to set up more reuse innovation centers. And then we have a lot of groups that come to us, probably 10 this year. We'll, we'll help 10 reuse businesses get started and join the circular economy this just this year alone. And it seems to be accelerating. So uh, as far as uh, overseas, you know, a lot of our, our work over there are, are curious People, businesses, entities, whatever they are, government or businesses or um, architectural firms that are, are, are really trying to learn from us. They're really trying to say that they have they see the waste and, and they are surprised that we have such a robust you know, reuse industry. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't think it was you know, that great. <laughs> I was like, you know, we're trying to build it every day. And they're they're amazed by it sometimes. And a lot of the buildings they have are not wood framed buildings and they struggle with that. Right. And, and so they're trying to make it work. But it it is, you know, it's a different that everything is structured differently there. And, and but I, I think they it's not as hard as they think. Um, and so we're trying to, you know, encourage groups um, to get started with this. And 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 we just had. In the last four weeks, we had uh, a group from Switzerland and one from France and one from Quebec and one from uh, British Columbia that came 
to visit our Reuse Innovation Center in Bellingham to uh, to learn. Well, and I know that there are much older buildings in other parts, in some other parts of the world, and imagine that you know that so the materials are going to be different, as you said. They're they're not all wood buildings, and I don't know if like the old bricks and old stone and um, some of the the uh, classic building materials are are they appropriate for reusing? Yeah, uh, well, it's funny that you would ask that because it's it's often asked in the opposite way. Um, a lot of people think of our industry as salvaging antiques, you know, things like that. Like they, we go after stained glass windows and we go after old light fixtures. And, you know, maybe they've been to uh, reuse stores around the Seattle area and they see a lot of those vintage materials. You know, they're more valuable, frankly. Like if you had a new light fixture that was from Home Depot and it was only $25 new and you saved it, I mean, how much could it possibly be worth? And if you saved it, another light fixture that was from the 1920s and it was really unique, you know, it might be worth $200 instead of $5, you know. So, um, so mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of the older materials are are really valuable and, and sought after, especially if you have an older home and you are trying to maintain it in, in with era-specific materials, right? But it's really uh, the newer materials that people question as far as whether they're worth it because um, a lot of the newer materials that are being produced out there in the world are pretty inferior to the, the past. And we have um, we ha- we can do a comparison of that because we deal with materials that are 200 years old. We deal with materials that are two years old. And so we can make comparisons. So do you find that there is still value in reusing some of the newer materials that are like mass produced or you know, what happens to those if they're not um, of value in the circular economy? Yeah, that's yeah, that's true. I, you know, one of the things about the, uh, our operation is we don't give up on anything. And if we were to give up on newer materials, it would, it would be like uh, saying, well, we all of those materials must go to the dump or they should go to the dump. We're not trying to say that we are trying desperately to save things. And then even if we end up selling them for less money, it's still about saving them and and trying to uh, make a positive impact on, on the environment and the community. So it's great actually to be able to take materials and offer them for a lower price because we equate sustainability and affordability as absolutely essential to each other. There's no sustainability uh, that exists that is not, you know, that isn't affordable so that it, it's available to everyone. And so a lot of the newer materials um, we can sell for less. And a lot of the older ones, you know, we they may have a higher price because they are, for example, antiques. But we're not we're not trying to let new manufacturers off the hook and say, you know, we are trying to you know, essentially hold them accountable and say your products are 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 designed, you know, to be uh, thrown away. Well, they they seem to be. I mean, not that they should be, but it it seems like there there is this whole throwaway mentality. It's like, oh, it's cheap. Let's not let's not worry about it. We'll just buy another one. 
so helping people understand a, a different different view of that is important. Yeah, I think if you go to any new store, like let's say you go to Home Depot and you see materials that are on display and they're already damaged, so they're displaying damaged materials, maybe because the shopping cart nicked it or something like that and, and punched a hole in it or something, and and you realize how, how fragile and inferior that product is, that they would go on to display that material as for all to see its poor quality. <laughs> And people buy it anyway. They buy it anyway. So our materials, you know, are are clearly um, the most sustainable materials in the world because they have no carbon footprint or, you know, and and we we do, you know, I I think that they are more durable, too. So a lot of the materials that we take out, um, like the wood, you know, we took out yesterday, we took out a thousand square feet of of reclaimed fur flooring. Uh, from an old 100-year-old farmhouse. And the thing is, it's already lasted 100 years. It's in perfect shape. It's it's very likely going to last another 100 years. And when I compare that to some of the snap-together laminate floorings that you'll, luck, you'll be lucky to get 20 years, it really isn't just replacing one uh, equivalent. Sometimes our materials are producing, or they're replacing two or three equivalents of new, right? Because right. if you buy something new that's inferior, then it's it's you're going to have to buy it again. Whereas our material will will certainly last for another hundred years, and, uh, and you know because of the first hundred, it's still doing great. There's a sales plug. Yeah, yeah, and that's you said something a, a couple minutes ago about how sustainability and affordability go hand in hand, and I think that is an alternate view that many have that sustainability costs more. And yeah. you know, the, to, to do a sustainable project, you have to be willing to pay an extra 5 to 10%. We get that all the time in architecture. But it seems that they're, you know, in, in using materials that have been mined from you know, the industrial buildings or old homes, that that can provide more sustainability uh, without extra costs. Although, you know, there, there's got to be some costs involved in the deconstruction itself. Um, so, I, I'm yeah, I'm I'm curious what you know some of the challenges are to doing this and how we can how we can work through those to to a better solution. You're listening to Living Shelter. I'm your host, Terry Phelan. I'm talking with Dave Benink of Reuse Consulting about building deconstruction and the, the circular economy. So, so, Dave, where are the gaps in, that you're seeing and what can we do better? Well, uh, so, so one point is that, you know, we're competing with machines. Think about this. Why do you call it a demolition permit? unless you are expecting the structure to be demolished. Why would you not call it a building removal permit or something like that, right? So so what, mm. what they're doing is... So there's some policy. The construction industry <laughs> is... Uh, demolition is is the 
assumption. Demolition is the baseline. So when you think of how long, when you're planning a project and you, you have a schedule, you don't allow a lot of time for demolition because they don't require a lot of time for demolition and waste and destruction, right? That doesn't take very long. And so when you're planning a project and you have a, a, a budget, you plan, you find out or you think about what is the demolition cost of the last building or what would the demolition person say? And um, and because they're in and out so fast and they've destroyed and wasted everything, that it doesn't cost as much, you know, as it would, for, you know, if they had taken their time. So the barriers to deconstruction are usually two things. Um, because when I talk to people about it and, they, and all the benefits, they're like 95% of people say, I want deconstruction. That's the way to go. And with two caveats, as long as it doesn't take too long or cost too much, then I'm in favor. Right. That's for me. And as soon as you find out that it costs more, it takes too long. You're saying, well, that's too bad. I, I, it, it's, it's $500 more and I don't have $500 in my million dollar budget or something like that. So, <laughs> so what, and, and that, that, it, you know, in essence is a prior a choice and a priority. But um, the, one of the ways that we've overcome that is by telling people this fact, the average American wastes about 4.9 pounds of waste every day of their lives. Okay. On average, 4.9 pounds. Do the math. It's about 134,000 pounds in their, your lifetime. One, one of the reasons that number resonates for me is the the average American home weighs about 134,000 pounds, not including the concrete. So what it means is that demolishing the average American home is equivalent to a lifetime's worth of waste. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, every day of your life, you try to recycle bottles and your newspapers, right? And, and you try to use reusable shopping bags and things. But if you choose to demolish a home, you've, that's your entire allotment for your entire lifetime in all in one day. It, all of that waste happens all in one day, despite all of your efforts and all of your shopping bags and everything. It's all meaningless because you demolished a home in one day. Your entire lifetime's worth of waste is, 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 is wasted in one day. So we are trying to get people to avoid that. now. We don't expect them to just do it and pay more. So we have worked very hard. The first house we did took three and a half weeks. Today, if I did that house in over three and a half days, I would be disappointed. And and then and so that has not only does it take less time, but it take it costs less. And you know, as a consultant, I don't have a huge crew where I can uh, necessarily do that. But that's what I'm teaching other people to do is to be able to work really fast to try and fit into this this uh you know construction mindset that things you know should be take you know done quickly like that it doesn't shouldn't take more time and and it shouldn't cost more i mean compared to demolition so one of the ways we keep our costs down is that we get paid twice so we get paid to take the building down right and then we get paid again when we sell the materials so that's why we're trying to keep the materials in good shape, because we do want to be paid twice. And, and that's how we compete. And that's how we beat machine mechanical demolition. Every week, we're winning projects over them. 
despite them mm. being able to destroy the building with one person in like two days. And we're winning anyway because we have a few tricks like that. That's that's great. Are there things that people can do to minimize the impact on the schedule in other ways, like getting things prepared, planning ahead? I mean, how how far ahead are you booking your crews at this point? Well, and that's a really good question. You're bringing up good points. Um, the first thing is that we... Uh, you know, we don't, I don't maintain a very large crew because I am often called off to other states and provinces to help start crews there. And, and so it's hard for me to do that. But we, you know, like, for example, we are working in King County. And so if you're in Bellevue and you have a project and you call us, then what we do is we, the first thing we're talking about is what is the schedule like? Sometimes you'll have a project like we just looked at a project in Bellevue, actually, and it's a vacant building and they are, are going through the, the process, which is months or years of trying to figure out how to, you know, take this building down and build a new building. It's not something that happens overnight. So in reality, there is a lot of time. It's just not utilized. And so what we talked with them is that if if they were able to you know, when they got the process going and they were ready for demolition, but they weren't ready for demolition, but they had a demolition permit, you know, maybe the power, the water, gas is still on, you know, there were some other hurdles to jump through. We we could start removing the carpets. We could start removing in kitchen cabinets, things like that. So, so sometimes what following, you know, whatever rules of the community there are, you know, the permitting rules and stuff, we'll, we'll start doing work, whereas the demolition person doesn't want to show up until everything is ready. Like, everything is ready. Okay, I'm going to come in and smash it and leave. You know, and we come in and we do surgical, you know, removal of stuff, selective work. And so we're getting a head start, essentially, right? We're, we're cheating. Mm -hmm. I'm a cheater. <laughs> it's okay, though. Uh, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't call it cheating. I think you're you're planning. You're you're yeah. making use of of gaps in the schedule. That I mean, there's yeah. In a construction project, there's always the planning takes as long as the construction, if not longer. So you you don't have to mobilize your team all at once. Go in and get done and get out. You can come back. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah that, to do the next right. level, the yeah. next layer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, you know these the surface items that like wood flooring that often takes a lot of time to pull it out. Well, we we don't have to rush that because if if we have you know if there's several weeks before the actual start date and utilities are disconnected and all of these tasks are are completed, we can do that kind of work ahead of time, like we just did yesterday, where you know, we spent, you know, the day removing a, a thousand square feet of flooring and that takes a lot of time. So but when it comes down to it, once we've done that kind of prep work, um, it is, a, you know, for example, this house we're doing will it will be a three day process to get it down um, to the foundation. And uh, that's usually where we stop. A lot of our project the foundation is reused. Um, mm -hmm. So people are excited. Oh, that's good. Yeah, because there's so much carbon and concrete. Right. And so, yeah, we, we've saved probably over 30 million pounds of concrete in, in place by 
by surgically and carefully removing the building from uh, from the foundation and and then they reuse the foundation maybe they add to it or whatever but but there are times when that actually works there are times when that doesn't work like the foundation is old or cracked or whatever but when it does right. work you have that huge savings of money and carbon using it and we're absolutely suited for that task you know or as a machine might crack it or damage it or undermine it right right we, we don't have any large equipment doing that so that that opens up the door to people and we're constantly trying to open the door to um, these possibilities like people will regularly reuse materials from the old building in the new building because we made them available whereas demolition would have it would have been a, a huge uh, expense to uh, in addition to the demolition cost and so that's another way we keep the cost down because demolition is basically <clears throat> you're paying someone to destroy all your possessions and you go out the next day and buy them all over again. <laughs> and That's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so counterintuitive. <laughs> so oh. um, so there, are, there are different ways to look at costs and that we try to expand people's minds on that. Like, you know, when we save, let's say we save a bunch of wood paneling that you're from your, you know, the home that your grandfather built or something like that, and you reuse it in your new building, it, it is a value. It is a, a benefit because you're not, you know, you're not having to purchase that new. Well, plus it's got the emotional value. If if it's a, a building or a home that you have an emotional tie to in some way, a family building or just something that you love, you know, reusing the material can add a personal level of of craft and and enjoyment that you don't get out of something that you buy off the shelf. That's right. Yeah, and just just honoring your your family's history as well of not destroying and wasting their dream home that they slaved you know over trying to get it built over a two year period or whatever they did, and and you know and you're um, you're able to to save that and and just honor that memory just by saving in the first place. Well, and it, it sounds like you do a wide range of scale from, as you said, kitchen remodels or, you know, single family homes or portions of them up to industrial buildings and schools. And I mean, how do you manage that level of diversity in your clientele? I would think that like Working with municipalities is completely different than working with a homeowner. Yeah, it 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 is uh, it is challenging, and it, it's you know just something that when you uh, I've I've done all these things multiple times in the past, so it makes it easier. I know what to expect. You have to understand that as a consultant that's trying to build this industry worldwide now. We you know I I don't have the luxury of just staying in my safe spot, you know, or like. Staying in the comfort zone of like doing whatever that it would be. Um, I I have to branch out. I have to do all projects and save all materials so that I can it you know I can inform my clients about like when they come to me and say here's here an architect or a reuse business you know will come to me and say here's a project have you ever done one like this and I'm like yes I have. I've done all the projects, you know, industrial and commercial and institutional and agricultural and residential. 
all that. And so, um, so I kind of know what to expect. And we sold all those materials, so we have an idea of what they're worth. And frankly, you know, coming into our reuse innovation center in Bellingham, you never know what you're going to find. So that actually is kind of fun for people, I think. You know, so there's lots of good things about it. And there's also lots of challenges related to that. But we we don't have, you know, we don't have the choice. Honestly, we you'll hear me say that a lot, though, because I don't come from this from the standpoint of wanting to do this. I come from the standpoint of needing to do this. And if some of your listeners understand that difference. A lot of sustainable building and in people in sustainability are are trying to capture a little piece of sustainability and take it as their own and show it off. And we are that's really just wanting it, you know. And they may choose something or not choose something like you know that one project we we didn't get the job because we we're $500 higher than someone else. You know, they only wanted to do deconstruction. They didn't need to do it. They didn't feel like they needed to do it or the world needed them to do it. And so we we uh, everything that I do and the huge efforts and the long hours and the sacrifice and all of that is because I truly believe that I need to do this for, you know, for our world and for our, our people. And 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 that's the difference. If more people would come with from that perspective a lot of the problems would be solved really quickly because they uh they're making decisions you know that uh, aren't in our best interest and and they just don't even understand it you know what i, I think i've got a, a deeper understanding of what sustainability is like when i talk about sustainability and affordability it makes people uncomfortable some people and you know and so we we don't bring it up all the time well, I I really appreciate that you come from that space of you know being you know committed to this as something that's that's essential to making a better world and you know really affecting change at a deeper level. Yeah. Uh, so kudos to you and your work. I have a couple questions where we're getting near the, the close of, of this session, personal question, with climate change affecting so much of our lives and, and really like people like you and I, it's something we think about all the time. What are a couple things you might suggest people do to become more resilient? I said this to somebody a couple of days ago. I said, um, the time of studying some of these issues may be over. Um, and I don't mean that for everyone, but I, I think for everyone to be studying, you know, issues related to climate change, it, you know, some at some point you have to decide whether you believe it or not or whether you want to act on it or not. You, you know, continuing to study it and say, we're in trouble. Then a year later, we're in trouble. Well, we're in more trouble, you know, but not doing anything about it, really, just telling us how much trouble we're in. I, I think that... Um, it's time to act, you know, and um, you can start with your own project. So I think one of the other, you know, one of the suggestions we give people is that, um, yeah, I know projects are extremely um, taxing and complicated, and this may feel like m more complication, but 
It does take efforts uh, related to the circular economy do take more time, I think, um, you know, a little bit more complex trying to source materials. And so you want to involve the circular economy early in whatever you're doing, because, you know, finding the right materials and and, um, making good choices and, and, uh, uh, you know, it it isn't as simple as just, you know, when we just talk about it. I mean, the reality is that Supply and demand is really hard to manage. And so, you know, I, I just think people need to think of, about their lifestyle choices early on and not just kind of like throw it in at the end um, um, after they're trying to solve all these other problems. So I wish I could think of how that could be done without more work. But um, but it is it's essential. And and I, I think also if you're someone that provides a service or a product. You know, trying to find a way to keep them, uh, make them affordable uh, is, you know, is is another uh, side of the issue. So because if, it, you know, if you have a, a product like mine where it's, you know, the most sustainable in the world and you want everybody to, you know, you have a seemingly endless supply of it that if you could access it or if you had demand for it. And so, you know, that's one of the things is that, we by making it affordable, you open up more markets. So, uh, just a couple thoughts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I and mean, the way that the um, supply chain has been impacted over the last few years with the pandemic and wars and you know other things that are outside of our control, knowing that there is this additional supply, this additional supply chain. I don't know if how many people really think of going to a used building supply center to to get things like doors and yeah it, it, on that point you know during the pandemic we had a lot new a lot of new people that came to us and why because they needed us because they were out of a job and they needed a water heater or something like that and they couldn't afford the new one which the corporations had just tripled the price of it right? Because of supply chain issues, they said. And so then our prices didn't go up at all. Hmm, amazing. So, oh. <laughs> um, and so uh, I want to say we, we earned a lot of friends during the pandemic because we didn't let our community down and we didn't uh, take advantage of the situation. And we were an affordable alternative when people needed that. And I think people appreciated that. Well, congratulations. I'm glad people found you and probably have spread the word and hopefully your your business will continue to grow and and this whole movement will continue with with your help. Where can people go to find out more information about your consulting and the innovation centers? Yeah, well it's it's reusecenter.net. So it's pretty simple reusecenter.net or reuseconsulting.com. Yeah, if there are people in King County that have a project and, you know, we have some availability, we would love to come and and, uh, provide that sustainable alternative to demolition, you know? And if someone is trying Mm -hmm. to source uh, sustainable building materials for a project, I mean, we have that too. And of course, our, our consulting services are available, you know, throughout North America. Great. Well, thank you 
for your time today. It was really good having you here and, and exploring this, this option and helping people understand you know, how, they can, how they can contribute more positively in their projects. Yeah, I appreciate the chance to talk. So that was Dave Benick of Reuse Consulting and Innovation Center. I also want to thank everyone listening in and hope you'll tune in again for more in-depth conversations with inspirational guests from the world of sustainable design and building. The Living Shelter Podcast is a project of Board & Vellum, a multidisciplinary design firm practicing architecture, interior design, and landscape architecture for residential, commercial, and civic projects. From our studio in Seattle, I'm your host, Terry Phelan. Take care, and we'll talk again soon.